We are in Genesis chapter 32, and that is on pages 27 and 28 in your pew Bibles. The title of the message this morning is God, My God. Victory. It's a word that we love to use, right? Victory. What does that look like? In sports, it's the champions at the end of the year, right? The people who get to hold up the trophy. They're the victors. But it only lasts for a year, right? It's temporary. Might see that reflected in the wins and loss column uh, as a team goes throughout the season, right? Victories and defeats. And those numbers can tell a story, but there's often more to it than that, right? There's a story underneath the numbers. For example, last night, if you're a Brewers fan and you were following along, unfortunately, they weren't able to win Game 7 and make it to the World Series, where most of us probably know they were going to get smoked anyways. But, uh, you know, they lost last night, right? But Again, what I'm saying, there's a story beneath that. There's more to it than that. And I think a lot of us, for many years, who are baseball fans, are going to remember the improbable 12-game streak that the Brewers went on over the last few weeks, right? And how they won the division and how they made it to the next round and all these things. So there wasn't, a, there wasn't the victory that we wanted, but even in that defeat last night, there's been some, some pretty cool victories as a fan. Think about... Uh, the area of politics, right? If you've had your TV on or your radio on at all in the last few weeks, you have seen the ad campaigns, right? You have seen that there's a heated battle coming up and there are going to be victors and there are going to be losers, right? Somebody's going to win and somebody's going to lose. We see this imagery and this language in military elements, right? Right? Victory and defeat in in war, we see this happen. And we see it in our personal lives, right? Maybe it's a little more abstract, right? We talk about things like getting victory over our addictions or victory over our bad habits. I think it's interesting, interesting that even in this secular age, you hear people say things like, you know, defeating my demons, Right? So there's this idea that there is, there's a war going on, right? There's victory and there's defeat. And I will argue that victory never comes without defeat, without some element of loss and some element of sacrifice. So how do our lives as Christians in this world reflect this reality, that there is a brokenness that comes along with victory? We might talk about There is a cross before a crown. There are ups and downs as we go along this journey of life. And if you're just visiting with us, we have been in the book of Genesis. And the last couple months have been pretty interesting as we've been looking at the lives of Isaac and Jacob specifically. And some of their, the people that are associated with them. And I argued that Jacob's life really serves as a mirror to us, right? It's God's word held up to us to reflect to us who we really are. And I have said this already, 
I have felt, I never really connected with Jacob before, and I don't know just if it's been just digging in a little deeper, but I, his story has always just kind of felt kind of like, oh, that's, you know, just this distant story. But I feel like I've really related to Jacob a lot lately, uh, just in my own life and, and seeing what God has done in my life. But Jacob here, uh, he's still running from Esau. He's been on the run from Esau since uh, he stole his birthright in chapter 25, and then he stole the blessing in chapter 27. And his mom says, get out of here, run away, because he wants to kill you. Uh, we just saw last week that he is on the run. He's leave, fleeing and leaving his uncle Laban. So Jacob here is still on the run. And again, ultimately, Jacob is running from God. But... The running is going to come to an end, finally, (laughs) this week. Jacob is going to be met by the Lord, and Jacob is going to meet his brother Esau. So let's dig in here. We're going to look at chapter 32, verses 1 through 21. And then we're actually going to skip verses 22 to 32, the passage about Jacob wrestling with God. And that's actually going to be the sermon for next Sunday. Uh, Matt Grimsley, who's... Uh, the pastor of Resurrection Presbyterian Church in Madison, the new church plant that started the same day we did. Uh, He's actually coming up, and he's going to preach on that passage. And then we're going to pick back up at chapter 33 and read uh, the rest of chapter 33. So let's dig in here. Uh, Chapter 32, verses 1 through 21. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And there are four hundred men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, If Esau comes to the camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams. 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong, where are you going, and whose are these ahead of you, 
Then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward, I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him. And he himself stayed that night in the camp. This is the word of the Lord. If you're following along on the outline, the first section that we're going to look at is a bold and desperate prayer. A bold and desperate prayer. So Jacob has fled from Laban. He's on the run again. And God meets him. God meets him again while he is on the run. These angels come and appear to him. You may remember in chapter 28, he was met in a dream by the angels. He sees the stairway coming down from heaven. And he says, this is the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And he names the place Bethel, which means house of God. And this, again, is a picture of God's grace in the life of Jacob. Jacob is running from the Lord, and the Lord comes to him again in his grace and appears to him. So Jacob is is traveling from Paddan Aram in the north down to Bethel in the south. This is where God told him to, to go, where he promised he would return to. And when Jacob made the vow, he said that he would go back here, but back to Bethel. But on the way back to Bethel, as he's returning, Jacob takes a detour. And this is interesting. Uh, Derek Kidner, who has written a, a commentary on Genesis, he says this about Jacob's detour. He says, geographically, the call to battle would take him nowhere near Esau. Geographically, the call to Bethel would take him nowhere near Esau. Spiritually, he could reach Bethel no other way. He had to confront his brother. Spiritually, he had to confront his brother, even though geographically, it was out of the way, right? Well, what's going on here with Jacob? Why is he taking the chance here to go and meet Esau? The last time they saw each other, Esau wanted to kill him, right? And this had been 20 years, 20 years had passed already since Jacob had stolen the blessing from his father Isaac. But notice Jacob's language here. Notice the change. He sends his messengers, in verse 4, instructing them, You shall say to my lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob. Okay? He calls Esau his lord, and he calls himself his servant. And he goes on at the end of of verse 5, he's sending all these things, in order that I may find favor in your sight in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers come back to Jacob, and things do not look good, right? Esau has 400 men with him, and Jacob is scared to death. It's bad enough, right, that Esau wanted to kill him, himself. Now he's got 400 men on his side. Now what's going to happen, right? 
Verse 7, it says that Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. You think? (laughs) But then Jacob goes to work, being Jacob. He divides up the camps, right? Splits them into two. And says, well, maybe if Esau comes with his 400 men and wipes out one of the camps, maybe the other one will be left and I'll still have something left, right? But then we see something beautiful happen. Something that we haven't seen recorded in the life of Jacob yet. 60 years. Jacob is 60 years old, at least, here. And he prays. Finally, we see Jacob praying and turning to the Lord. And this is not just any old prayer. This is not just, you know, God help me out here. Save my life and I'll, I'll be good, right? I'll turn things around, which is kind of his vow in chapter 28. This is a bold and desperate prayer in verses 9 through 12 here. Let's look at this prayer. There's four things that I want us to pay attention to. The first thing is that it's a covenantal prayer. It's a prayer that focuses on who God is and what God has promised. In verse 9, Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I've said in some previous messages that some of this language Jacob has used has, you know, kind of, it's like God's kind of far out there, right? Like God of Abraham, God of Isaac. He's still not quite saying exactly my God, but he's acknowledging who God is, right? Of course, Jacob knew that God was real. He'd already, God, the Lord had already appeared to him, but here he's, He's taking a step in the right direction, right? He's using that covenantal language of who God is and God's promises. And then something amazing happens in verse 10. First, it was a covenantal prayer. Now we see finally a confession, right? We finally see on Jacob's lips a confession. I am not worthy, right? I am not worthy, Just read about that language with the prodigal son. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Jacob finally confesses who he is to the Lord. And then there's this plea for deliverance in verse 11. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. It's an acknowledgement that God is the only one who can save him. God is the only one who can deliver Jacob from his brother Esau. So we have a covenantal prayer, a confession, a plea for deliverance, and then a reminder of God's promise. Verse 12, but you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. I wonder, do we pray like this? Are we bold enough to go before God and say, God, you said, 
It might feel like I shouldn't do that, right? Like I shouldn't pray that way. But that's why God has given us his word, his promises to us. Just like the promises that God had made to Jacob, to Isaac, to Abraham, God has given us promises in his word. And we right to go to him and say, God, you said, right? There's a ton of places we could go in scripture. I think one of the best places to go to pray this way is Romans chapter 8, right? God, you said no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When I'm feeling condemned or I'm condemning myself, God, you said you said you are for us. Who can be against us? God, you said that we are conquerors through him who loved us. God, you said nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And he said those things. You can remind him that he said those things. Right? Because they're true. They're true for us. So when you're struggling with assurance, when you're struggling with fear or doubt or anxiety or worry, are you so bold to go to God in prayer like this? God, you said. Taking Him at His word because He promised these things. Now this isn't some like name it, claim it, prosperity, theology, just saying, oh, if I just say it, I'm going to get it. I'm saying God has already said it. And these things are already true. It's not like we're trying to like do something to get God to do what he already said he's going to do. He already said these things are true. And I think when we do this, it's not God that needs to be reminded, right? It's us. But in saying, God, you said... We are reminding ourselves, right? We're reminding ourselves of what God has already said. So that's Jacob's bold and desperate prayer. Following the prayer, Jacob takes action. A bold and desperate offering. A bold and desperate offering in verses 13 to 21. So Jacob sends ahead of him this huge number of animals And he tells his servants, when Esau asks you what this is all about, this is in verses 17 and 18, say they belong to your servant Jacob and they are a present to my Lord Esau. They are a present. This word can also be translated as gift or offering. It's a word that's translated throughout the Old Testament as offering, something that is is given, that is is offered up to the Lord. And I, I like this translation, offering, because it's kind of connected with something that Jacob says in verse 20. He says, that I may appease him with the present or the offering, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. This word here for appease, it's the Hebrew word kapar, which is the word for atonement. It's the word to make amends, to cover over, to pacify. It's a word that was used throughout the Old Testament, day of 
Atonement where the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and he would kill the animal and he would spread the blood over the altar and over all the things. And remember, again, it's kind of connected to that picture of the Passover when, when they spread the, the blood on the doorpost, the angel of death would pass over, the Lord would pass over and the people would be spared, right? It's this idea of, of a covering, of a passing over, of a forgiveness, this idea of atonement. So Jacob is trying to appease Esau. He's trying to pay for his own life, really. He's trying to, trying to save his life by making this gift, giving him this offering. Maybe a, you know, a silly example would be like, uh, guys, married men, you can relate to this. You know, as a husband, when you do something boneheaded and on the way home, you're like, okay, pull over, go to the store, get some flowers, come home. I'm sorry, honey, I love you, forgive me, I'm an idiot, again and again and again, right? But it's that picture of, of an offering, of appeasing, right? Of appeasing the anger, of appeasing the wrath, and seeking forgiveness. And there's all kinds of ways we can genuinely do this and be reconciled in our human relationships. This isn't, this isn't like a wrong thing, this isn't like scheming and this is saying I'm trying to I'm trying to make up for something that I did wrong. We'll consider some of those things in a moment. And again, this is Jacob, right? He's probably still being Jacob a little bit here, but I think he's taking a step in the right direction, right? He has just prayed for the first time in his life, at least the first time that we see recorded. This is a step towards reconciliation with his brother Esau. And this is a working out of the deliverance that he had just boldly asked the Lord for. So again, I think finally we're starting to see a change in Jacob. But, but, getting right with God and others sometimes does come from our own strength, right? Sometimes we attempt to do it from our own strength. And we're going to skip verses 22 to 32, but you, you kind of know the story, right? God comes and he confronts Jacob. He attacks him. He wounds him. And Jacob is finally changed. But the Lord puts his hip out of socket, and it's a con- constant reminder for Jacob of his weakness and of his dependence upon the Lord. So Jacob, after that incident, comes limping along at the beginning of chapter 33, finally to meet Esau. So let's pick up there at chapter 33, verse 1. We're going to read the whole chapter. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. 
And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please. If I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that, it is, that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me, and at the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Esau said, Let me leave you with some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth, and built himself a house, and made booths for his livestock. Therefore the name of the place is called Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paddan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamer, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. Well, this is a remarkable scene here. Jacob in front, in verse 3, he goes out in front of his entire family, kind of opposite of what he did in chapter 32, right? Trying to split everybody up. Jacob goes out in front to meet Esau. Jacob, in chapter 32, in the wrestling match, had met God face to face and lived. So now facing his brother Esau is really nothing, right? He has faced God and lived. Now he comes out to meet Esau face to face. And we have this picture of Jacob bowing down seven times, right? If you've, if you've read most of the Bible, you know seven is the number of perfection. This is, this is a picture here of Jacob coming out in total submission to his brother Esau, bowing down seven times saying, I'm not worthy, brother. Forgive me, seeking this reconciliation. And pay attention to Esau's response in verse 4. This is a picture of sheer grace. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his and kissed him and they wept. Does this language sound familiar? Right? We've kind of built this up for you a little bit. The father in Luke 15 he ran, he embraced his son, and he kissed him. Do you think it's a coincidence that Jesus used that language? Was Jacob not the prodigal son? Or the prodigal son not Jacob? The younger son, the one who got the inheritance, who squandered it all, who lived his own way, and then who finally came to his senses? 
Jacob's transformation that God is doing in him continues to be seen in verse 5. He says, the children who God has graciously given to your servant. Jacob finally gives the glory to God. He finally gives the credit to God, saying, God is the one who has been gracious to me. God is the one who has sustained me. God is the one who has given me all of these gifts. And as the families draw near to each other, Esau's like, what's going on, Jacob? What's up with all these animals that you sent my way, right? And Jacob again reiterates this, that, that he's seeking to find favor in Esau's sight. But Esau says, keep it, Jacob. I don't need all this stuff. I don't need these things. But Jacob is adamant. No, I owe you. I owe you big time. And he does, doesn't he? For what he has stolen, the blessing that he has stolen. Notice in verse 10 what Jacob says. He says, if I have found your favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. In chapter 32 in the wrestling match, Jacob sees God face to face and lives. And so there's a connection here with what he, he saw God face to face and lived. And now he is being confronted. He is seeing his brother face to face. He says, accept my blessing Verse 11, because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Jacob is saying, Esau, I stole the blessing from you and now I'm returning it. I'm returning this insane amount of animals to you, right? To make up for what I did. Because I have enough, because God has dealt graciously with me. But notice the order of reconciliation for Jacob. First, Jacob is reconciled to God, right? In chapter 32. First, he is reconciled to God. Then, he is reconciled to his brother. We have a great picture of this in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2 is kind of split into two parts. The first is our reconciliation to God, how God has saved us by his grace when we were dead in our sins, how he comes to us and saves us. And the second section, second half of Ephesians 2, is how we are reconciled to one another. So all of the motivation for human reconciliation, for our relationships with other people being reconciled, must flow out of being reconciled first to God. It must flow out of a right relationship with our Heavenly Father that is made possible through Jesus Christ. Having difficult human relationships and not being reconciled to God, that's kind of how life in this world works, right? People have bad relationships, bad relationships get worse, and people just bounce from, from people to people, and they just fracture family relationships, and all it's just a mess, right? Life is a mess when people are not first reconciled to God, if we're reconciled to God, that doesn't mean that we're not going to have difficult human relationships, right? Just because we're Christians doesn't mean like all of a sudden our families are just perfect, right? Doesn't mean that all of our relationships, all of our friendships are perfect. But we have a new foundation to work upon now, right? We have a new understanding of forgiveness, right? Think about family relationships. Think about 
I mean, I don't know how many of you, maybe after you started walking with the Lord, you know, went home, mom, dad, you know, sorry for all the grief I gave you, you know, being reconciled to family members, being reconciled to friends or, you know, people you grew up with, being reconciled with neighbors. And it continues, right? It's not just, just, not just a one-time thing like, oh, you, you come to know the Lord and then I've got to get right with all these people. But it's a continual process of saying we are trusting the Lord, right? And we're going we're gonna to seek to have relationships that display this reconciliation, display what God has worked out in our own lives and live those things, live out those things. And the greatest picture, I think, of this is here in the church, right? The body of Christ. I mentioned Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. It says that, I'm not reading the whole thing, but in there it says, Jesus made us, speaking about Jews and Gentiles, both one, that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So Jesus in his death and his resurrection has killed the hostility that existed between these two people groups, right? And then that might exist between individuals. And it says, in him, that is Christ, you are all being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So God is doing a work as he reconciles us to himself and he reconciles us to one another. That is how the church is built up, right? So when we don't talk about confessing our sins, when we don't talk about hard relationships and getting right with one another, right? How can a church grow? How can a church thrive and, and be a witness, be a light in the community if those things are not being talked about. We, we talked about it last week at our congregational meeting, if you were here. Like, hey, we're a year in, right? The honeymoon stage is over at Livingstone, right? Newsflash. The honeymoon stage is over. Now it gets real, right? Now we got to deal with each other when things are hard. Not that we didn't have to before, but hey, we're in this, right? We're in this for the long haul, and we're going to have to we're going to have to work together. It's going to be hard. We're going to have to confess our sins to one another, be reconciled to one another. But that is a beautiful thing. That is a picture of what the church is, right? That is a picture of how God's word goes out from here, right? Into the, into the world, into our community, that people might hear the gospel. But it's only God who does it, and it's only by his grace that he does it in us and through us. It's only God who could reconcile these two brothers to one another, right? I mean, being mad enough to murder your own brother, that takes an absolute work of God's grace to reconcile a relationship like that. Well, now that Jacob and Esau are, are reconciled, what's next? Are they just going to be BFFs like Spend the rest of their days hanging out together, families hanging out, grill outs on the, you know, on the lawn there. Nope, that's not exactly what's going to happen. So we're going to see here in the last section, almost home, okay? Almost home, chapter 33, verses 12 to 20. Esau suggests that they stick together, but Jacob, that's not his plan, right? Jacob doesn't want to do that. And it's not because the reconciliation wasn't genuine. It's not because things haven't, haven't been healed. But it's because Jacob was on a mission to get back to battle. That's where God called him to go. That's what Jacob needed to do to obey God, was to get his, you know what, back to Bethel. 
okay? He was on a mission. But Jacob makes a couple interesting stops along the way. And we see two of those stops here. So remember, he's going back to Bethel. Bethel is the house of God. But he stops here and sucketh in verse 17, and he builds himself a house. Okay? Now, if you look on the map, Bethel, if you go straight north from, north from Bethel, it's about one day's journey to Shechem, which is the next place we're going to see. Then you go straight east, another day's journey just across the Jordan River, and that's Succoth, okay? So Jacob is two days' journey away from Bethel, <laughs> where he's supposed to go. But he stops, and he builds a house, okay? It doesn't take, like, probably a couple days. Like, he's probably there for a significant amount of time. He builds a house, and he builds things for his livestock. So he stops off in Succoth, Right? So then he goes, then he heads west about a day's journey, and he comes to Shechem. And we're going to see in chapter 34 what happens as a result of Jacob spending time in Shechem. And it's not good at all. It's horrible. Okay? So Jacob takes some detours. Again, we're going to dig into that next week. He doesn't fully obey God, I I don't think, here, and, and get to Bethel like he's supposed to. He makes some stops along the way. However, despite all Jacob's detours along the way, this chapter ends with a beautiful display of Jacob's newfound faith in the Lord. Verse 20, the last verse in the chapter 33. It says, There he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. God... God of Israel. God, the God of Israel. Not the nation, the person, right? God, when he wrestled, changed his name to Israel. God, the God of Israel. What a picture of victory. Of God victory over Jacob, to wrestle the old Jacob to the ground, to wound him, to cause him to see his time was up. No more running, Jacob. And God busts his hip, and Jacob's life is finally changed. He finally becomes a worshiper of God, and he can finally say, God, I, God, Have you experienced this type of victory in your own life? In other words, has the old you been defeated, been wrestled to the ground by the Lord, been wounded, and the new you who God has called you to be emerged? It's not something that comes by self-effort, right? We've seen that over and over and over in Jacob's life. It took him 60 years of doing things, his own, doing things his own way, of running from the Lord. And God finally gets a hold of him. And it's only by God's grace. It's only when the Father runs to us, those who have disobeyed, those who have run from him, those who have gone our own way, who have tried to save ourselves, 
and have failed miserably in the process. We are those who have looked to God's Son, the true Israel. He is the one who obeyed where Jacob failed and where we fail. He is the one who went to the cross. In the language of Isaiah 53, he was stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. His wounds, a broken hip, a crushed and broken body, but even death could not hold him could not stop him from completing the work that the Father sent him to do. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 speaks about the glory and the hope that we have that we have for resurrected bodies because of Jesus who rose from the dead. Paul says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, Where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is that victory that we get to celebrate this morning as we come to the Lord's table. It's not something that we've done, right? It's not something that we deserve. It's something that Christ has done for us. He went to the cross. He lived a perfect life and went to the cross and died and rose again so that we might have new life, so that we might be able to stand before God, so that we might be able to come to this table and say, I'm not worthy, right? Like Jacob, I'm I'm not worthy to come. But because of your son, you invite me to come, right? You welcome me to your table. You've given me new life. And if you're a Christian, you're welcome to come to this table. This is for all those who have trusted in Christ, who have said, I'm not my own, but I belong to him. He is my righteousness. He is my perfection. He is the one who was wounded for me. And if that's, if that's true of you, then you're invited to come to the table. And if you're not there yet, we would ask that you'd remain in your seat. We would love to talk to you about what it means to trust Jesus, to, to walk with him, to follow him. But if you're there, you're invited to come to the table.